tonight. My assignment is to speak to you on grace alone. Grace alone. I've chosen as a text Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 10. I'd like to invite you to stand again if you don't mind <laughs> as we read the, the whole text. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 10. Follow along in your Bible as I read. Sing, O Barry, thou that it's not there. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with the child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thy habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left. And thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not. For thou shalt not be shamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth. Wow. And thou shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. For thy maker is thine husband the Lord of hosts is his name and thy redeemer the holy one of Israel the God of the whole earth shall be called for the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth when thou wast refused saith thy God for a small moment I have forsaken thee but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, says the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have shown that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I will not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, said the Lord that hath mercy on thee. The word of the Lord. Please join me in a word. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our light and our salvation and granting us the assurance and confidence to declare it holy. Thank you, Father, for being our joy, comfort, our guide, our teacher, and in every sense of light, you are light within. You are light around, light reflected from us, light to be revealed to us. Oh Father, we're so happy that you do not merely give light, you are our light. You do not merely give salvation, you are our salvation. We thank you Father that all who by faith have laid hold upon you have all covenant blessings in their possession. Thank you. Because of this law, the powers of darkness are not to be for you, O Lord, being our light, destroys them. Our hearts are relieved that our strength does not rest upon the conceited vigor of an arm of flesh, but upon the real power of the great and omnipotent God that you are. Father, our confidence is that if you have strengthened us, we cannot be weakened by all the devices and schemes of the enemy of our souls. 
Grant us the grace to keep our eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose matchless name we pray. Amen. Please Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century were developed in response to specific perversions of the truth that were taught by the Roman Catholic Church that ran things in the world at that time and had been corrupted. The Catholic Church taught that we are saved through a combination of God's grace, the merits that we accumulate through penance and good works, and the superfluity of merits that the saints before us had accumulated. To all of this nonsense, the reformers responded, sola gratia, grace alone. The words sola gratia mean that human beings have no claim upon God. No. That is, God owes us nothing except just punishment for our many sins and our willful sins. Therefore, if he does save sinners, which of course he does in the case of some, but not all, if he does save sinners, it is only because it pleases him to do it. That's it. Indeed, apart from this grace and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that flows from it, no one would be saved. Since in our lost condition, human beings are not capable of winning or seeking out or incorporating God's grace. By insisting on grace alone, the reformers were denying that human methods, human techniques, or human strategies in themselves could ever bring anyone to faith. It is grace alone expressed through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ, releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from death to spiritual life. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, what is biblical Christianity really about? What is it really about? In short, it is the miraculous and radical transformation of a corrupt sinner, changing his legal status for standing in the eyes of God and granting him peace with God and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's it. atoning sacrifice of God incarnate, Jesus Christ our Lord. This change is so radical. This change is so comprehensive and infinite that only the work of the Trinitarian God of the Bible can achieve it. That is election by the Father, redemption by the Son, and regeneration by the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Man's only contribution to his salvation is the sin from which God says it. Man, you didn't even hear what I said. His only contribution is a sin. Becoming a biblical Christian is basically impossible as far as human effort is concerned. Man, you're not even hearing me. I said becoming a biblical Christian is basically impossible as far as human effort is concerned. It's a miracle. If your reading of the Bible didn't show you that, Something is radically wrong with you. So what is the problem? In an effort to make Christianity more democratic or accessible, many have changed the heart of the message. The scandal of the ages is the constant attempts in every generation at redefining Christianity. That's why you have a new cult opening regularly or fragmentation within denominations and new units formed and uh, just keep spinning on, spinning on. Everybody's trying to redefine the thing. The miraculous and monergous 
Christianity, as presented in the Bible, is a threat to people. If God must suddenly and effectively change people, and if it is true that they cannot change themselves, the disturbing reality is that many who profess do not possess this salvation. I hope they know that. They have to redefine it so that people can stay in. This is what drives the motivation behind developing alternative understandings of Christianity. Thus, the performance of rituals and mystical ceremony, like the magical presence in the Eucharist in Romanism. Hmm? Y'all with me? Hmm? They have to invent something. Because this idea of God all by himself, monergistic, God instead of synergistic, God all by himself, Changing somebody radically and miraculously. If that is so repulsive, they have to come up with something. So Romanism has come up with rituals and mystical ceremony, like the magical presence in the Eucharist. Come on. See the priest raising it? Hmm? Or the pretentious keeping of a code of morality, like in all forms of legalism. The self-righteous participation in social and or political activism for the promotion of certain so-called worthy causes like liberation theology or feminist theology or LGBT theology. <laughs> what else have they come up with? Or the passionate participation in popular and emotional celebrations of the culture like prosperity theology. I'm just naming a few. If I keep this up, we won't have any time to finish this text. Hmm? All these have been offered to the world as the essence of Christianity. Sometimes these alternative principles are presented individually as well as in creative combinations. <laughs> they are offered because the biblical divine kudeta in an individual's life is unacceptable to many contemporary minds. Many are afraid to preach the plain gospel as a real miracle that brings radical change in a sinner's life. They're afraid to preach that. They're worried that many professing believers might prove to be fakes or that those who are targeted for recruitment into the faith will be turned off by such a requirement. You're going to tell people up front, listen, to be a real Christian, God must radically intervene in your life, change you. Wow. The downgrade and watering down of the gospel is seen to be a necessary face-saving device to cover the embarrassment of so many spurious conversions. Because it's obvious then that a lot of Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, just what did our Lord Jesus come to earth to do? What did he come to do? The last chapters of the book of Isaiah are about a mysterious figure called the servant of the Lord, who is to bring God's salvation into the world. The New Testament writers, virtually all of them, identify Jesus Christ as the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. Our text does not deal with this servant directly, but it does speak about the salvation he brings. It is thoroughly wonderful indeed. This is a wonderful text. In this passage, there are two pictures. Y'all stay with me now. There are two pictures in this passage of two women. Two pictures of two women. Verses 1 to 3 depict, depict one woman. Verses 4 to 10 depict another woman. So what are we looking at? Two pictures of what? Of two women. Stay with me. From these two pictures, we're going to learn first about the confounding fruitfulness of the grace of God. You heard it right. Confounding fruitfulness. Not 
name with you. It's fruitful, but it's confounding. Mm. And secondly, we're going to learn about a covenant fidelity that comes with the grace of God. Covenant fidelity. So confounding fruitfulness and covenant fidelity. All right. <laughs> it's extravagant grace I'm talking about. It's magnanimous grace I'm talking about. <laughs> when I talk about the grace of God, I want you to understand that what's bothering people is how could anybody be that generous? I submit to you tonight that many people have rejected Christianity not because it's hard, but because it's easy. Are you not even hearing me? Some, some people, they haven't rejected it because it's hard. Like they say, you know, you all have all these rules and you have these yeah, laws and all of these things you can't do. I don't need that. No, that's not the reason. That's, that's, that's just a facade. Right? That's a pretense. The real reason for the rejection of this Christianity is because it's too easy. How could anybody just, just give away so much? What's this? Some kind of snake aisle salesman? You mean to tell me that I inherit all this sin from my parents? Going back to Adam. And that I've committed all of this sin on top of that. So that the Bible calls it an infinite debt and unfinite and corrupt. And this Jesus is just going to just show up to us. Live the life that I should have lived for me. Then die the death that I should die for me. And give me all credit. Take all my filth, all my mess, and give me all of his merits. Just what? Man, that is... <laughs> People are like, my goodness, that's too easy. Ridiculous. I gotta come up with an alternative. So let me have my ritual system, let me have my works system, let me have this thing is too easy. This grace is too magnanimous. It's too extravagant. We will conclude by demonstrating the kind of life that flows from affirming and embracing these realities of faith. So let's do them one by one and then I'll sit down. Okay? Number one. Confounding fruitfulness. And I, I'm looking at the first three verses as I told you. The basic message here is that our God is able to bring life out of a barren womb. Did you hear me? God is able to bring life out of what? A barren womb. Mm. This is what happens spiritually when a person becomes a biblical Christian. God brings life out of a barren womb. And that's not supposed to go together, right? You need a fruitful womb to be a children, correct? But now this God of ours is something else. He brings life out of a barren womb. Verses 1 to 3 talk of a barren woman. According to verse 1, though she is barren, and she has never had a child, she never went into labor. She is having so many children that according to verse 2, they have to expand their tent. That's the family home. In verse 3, her children are so many, they are repopulating nations and abandoned cities. Do you see it? <laughs> a barren woman! Just imagine that! What is this image of? What's this image about? This is a prophetic image, of course. What is this telling us? Of course, one thing most Bible scholars say, and I think this is true, is that this at least is saying that God is going to bring Israel back from exile in Babylon, and they will again inhabit their land. Okay? Now, though I don't think this prophecy precludes that, it doesn't exhaust the meaning of it, of this. Can't exhaust it. 
Here's the reason why. Verse 3 does not just say that the children of this woman are going to inhabit one new nation. It says they're going to fill nations. <laughs> I could just limit it to Israel, and I'm not saying that it, it, it couldn't be that too. But it says nations. Look, look at Abraham. 
We look up to him, don't we? Don't we? We call him great. Yet he was fundamentally flawed. Have you forgotten when he sent a woman and her son, Hagar and Ishmael, out into the desert to die when they created family strife because of his own bad decision? He's an awful, that was an awful move. Hmm? He had a dark side. At another time, he twice exposed his wife to sexual abuse to save his own skin. That man's a coward. <laughs> These things could have all been disastrous. Abraham's life would have been a disaster. But God intervened. <laughs> you get the picture now? He could not reinvent himself. It took divine intervention. Sovereign grace. Mm. What about Jacob, Abraham's grandson? What about him? We look up to him too. But he had a dark side too. He was a con man and a liar. Hmm? I'm not going to go to his story. But he lied to his blind and aged father Isaac in, in, in one of the most important moments of his father's life. He was a liar, con man. He also, when he, he had his own children, favored one of his sons over the others. Remember Joseph? Huh? Creating bitterness in the family. Trouble. Bucker. Intervene. He only became something because of divine intervention. How about another great figure in the Bible? Who came through the, the line of, of David? Well, through, through, through whom the line of David comes? Judah. Remember Judah? His name and tribe became great. Hmm. But he too was fundamentally flawed. His son died, and Judah neglected his widow daughter-in-law while he was out having sex with prostitutes. Awful fellow. But God! <laughs> Today, we look up to Judah because of divine intervention. Not because Judah reinvented himself. How about David? He is known as the greatest of the kings of Israel, saying the king of kings himself. David is known as a man after God's own heart, yet he was fundamentally flawed. His lust after the wife of one of his soldiers, I were a soldier to whom he owed his life. His lust after that soldier's wife uh, led to a lot of trouble. He then arranged to have the soldier killed so that he could marry the man's wife. That's his awful fella. Then he tries to cover it up. Which would have been a disaster for his kingdom. But God! God is to be. David is not somebody because he was able to reinvent himself. He was somebody because God intervened. I know, this, I know, I know what some of you are thinking when you read about these kind of people. You look at them and you self-righteously think or say, couldn't God have gotten a little better material to work with? I mean, what's wrong with God's leadership development system here? I mean, how, does it not know how to identify leadership potential? Why doesn't God work with better material? You may ask. The answer to the question is that there is no better material anywhere. You are not better material. I am not better material. <laughs> One of the main themes of the Bible is that you and I must be born again. Unless God intervenes, we will never be able to be the people we ought to be. Never! We're all spiritually bad. You and I must be born again. Sustained personal exertion will not lift the heavy load of our sin. Spectacular ceremonies and rituals will not appease the wrath of an infinitely holy God. Serious philosophical reasoning will not unravel the depths of our moral corruption. Spending on contributions and gifts to the work of the ministry will not bribe the Holy One of Israel. <laughs> Speaking of theological and biblical convictions will not give you righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. You must be born again and only the grace of God can achieve it. He must intervene. So that's the first thing. That's the first thing. And what were we talking about? Conf 
God of grace and grace alone. Alright, let's move to the next one. Covenant fidelity. And this time we focus on verses 4 through 10. The second image, which is verses 4 through 10, gives us another marvelous picture of a woman. Two women. What's the first woman again? What's the first woman? Shout it out. The barren woman. That's verses 1, 2, and 3. Alright? That, that was fulfilled in the new birth or regeneration of true believers through faith in Christ. What's wonderful about the second metaphor is that God can only, can, God can not only bring life out of a dead womb, that's the first woman, but he can also bring love out of a dead marriage. <laughs> Come on now. So the first woman is a barren woman. And the second woman is a separated woman. A marriage fell apart. And the, the, the image here is that God can not only bring life out of a dead womb, secondly, he can bring love out of a dead marriage. Wow! Obviously, there is a hint here that there is hope for the worst of marriages. However, the issue here is far more serious than that. Is it something a bit more serious than that? Of course it is. The marriage between God and his church. Two biblical Christians. The marriage between God and his church is so solid that nothing can separate. Man, you're not hearing this. It is so strong that nothing can serve it. It is able to survive even our unfaithfulness, producing purity where there was failure and holiness where there was order. The woman in of the second image is a separated wife. So you have a barren wife, now you have the separated wife. She's separated from her husband. Why? Now, now, this text actually doesn't tell you, but you have to look at the wider context, which is in Isaiah 50. Not very far earlier. Okay? Isaiah 50, verses 1 to 3. The children of Israel are depicted as a wife. And God is depicted as Israel's husband. God is like a husband who loves his wife, marries his wife, cares for his wife, nurtures his wife. Of course, God has done this for centuries. Love and serve his people, his bride. Isn't that the truth? You read the history of the church, you read the scriptures. This is all God has been doing. Being faithful to his believers, faithful to his bride, faithful to the church. Okay? Fine. What does the wife do in response to such love? She commits adultery. is being faithful, providing, loving, nurturing, caring. And how does the bride respond? How does the church respond? She goes a-whoring after other gods. She commits adultery. Spiritual adultery. Do you see how the metaphor works? Hmm? Do you see? Israel is putting herself in the arms of other laws. So what does God do? God does what any sensible husband would do. Come on now. Your, your wife gone off. We without a lot of us. Oh, wait, wait a We are fooling. Oh, what is this for me at all? God does what any faithful husband would do. Verse 7, God said, I, I abandon you. And in verse 8, he said, I hid my face from you. Come on now. What does that mean? God withdrew. He said, in fact, look, because of your infidelity, I cannot be with you anymore. Now there were immediate and serious consequences to this action by God. Israel, just like today, was a little nation surrounded by big nations. When God withdrew his protection, here came Assyria. When God withdrew his protection, here came Babylon. The children of Israel were conquered. They were taken off into exile. They were separated. Mm, 
separated bride, separated wife. They were separated. Here you have a wife who has been unfaithful and she is now separated from her husband. What's next? What's next? She's separated from her husband. What's next? Obviously, her life has blown up. She took a chance and went off with other lovers. Mm-hmm. Having her fun. And now her life has blown up. What will become of her? This is what the prophecy is all about here. In these verses, there are astounding juxtapositions. First of all, you have the mighty maker in verse 5 saying what? For thy maker is thy husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thy redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. Now this divine husband is not happy with his wife's infidelity. In fact, in verses 7 and 8, you see his wrath. He's angry. His anger is a just anger. His anger is a warranted anger. But look, look. Don't jump to conclusions too quickly, you know. You have to take your time with this, you know. He's angry. But he's more than angry. Even though he is holy, even though he's wrathful, even though he's just, even though he's a mighty divine husband, he's also nonetheless a tender husband. <laughs> At the end of verse 6, Israel is reminded that God is thy God. He is your God. He's still yours. Wow! Wow! This husband said an amazing thing to his wayward wife in verse 6. This is just too wonderful, you know. That's why I tell you this magnanimous grace, this extravagant grace, is like it's too good to be true. But it's true. This is people's problem. This thing is too easy. He is so angry because the covenant with his wife, his bride, has been violated. He is saying, I'm leaving you. I'm angry. And yet, look at what he said in verse 6. It's too wonderful. In verse 6, he says, in effect, I see your distress. <laughs> what? <laughs> and the most angry husband will say, distress? In spirit, in this metaphor, in this image. Of course she is in distress because she brought it on herself. But look at the tenderness of this husband who is our God. He doesn't say, I see you are upset. Go on. You had a copy. You got what you deserve. No, 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 none of that. None of that. He doesn't say anything like that. It is obvious that the distress was created of her own doing. But it still moves me. Nothing will ever break it again. 
Nothing will ever remove that covenant from you again. Will never be separated again. The mountains, come on, you ready? The mountains will be removed, but our covenant will not be moved. Our marriage is more enduring than even the mountains. What does that mean? What does that mean? God says, in effect, in spite of the fact that I'm holy, in spite of the fact that I am just and righteous in my anger, I am still moved even by the distress that you brought on yourself. I'm going to heal our marriage and it will never ever be broken again. How in the world can this be? Amazing love. How can it be? <laughs> what fulfills this astonishing prophecy? Just as verses 1, 2, and 3 were only understood as ultimately being fulfilled in the New Testament in the new birth, so these verses can only be fulfilled and understood in the light of the cross of Calvary. Also, in verse 7, God says what? For a moment, I have what? I have what? Y'all talk to me. For a moment, I have what? Forsaken. The, the word translated forsaken is the same Hebrew word that shows up in Psalm 22, 1, where the speaker there says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As, that's the very word, that's the very phrase our Lord Jesus spoke from the cross. What was our Lord saying as he was dying on the cross? He was saying, I'm getting abandoned. Mm. I'm being forsaken. I am getting abandoned so that you don't have to be abandoned. The Father is hiding his face from me so that you can have the light of his countenance. Hallelujah. That's what Calvary was doing. He was taking the heat for us. God forsook him so that he will not Forsake us! <laughs> so you can go right down this passage. You can go down the passage, you know. You can go right down this passage and apply it to the work of Christ. Verse 7, Jesus was forsaken. Verse 8, Jesus lost the face of the Father. Verse 9 and 10, the very flood of God's ultimate justice came down on Jesus. Why? Why did it all happen? I will explain. Do you make it a habit of letting other people, letting other people drive your car? Put up your hand. Put up your hand if you do it, make it a habit. Okay, you're, you're a little unusual. If you do, that's quite generous of you. Hmm? But it could also be quite costly. <laughs> huh? Especially when you're not careless and irresponsible people behind the wheel. What if they hit the car? Will saying sorry be enough for you? You see, they say, you see, that's what I thought. What did they really meant it when they said sorry? Still, still no, you want, you want some, okay, okay. Listen, listen to me. There are only two things that can happen when such an accident happens. Two things. One is, you can say, I'm glad you're sorry. But you have to pay for it. Huh. Here's how much it costs to take it to the body workshop. Alright? So I'm glad you're sorry, but you have to pay. You can make them pay for it. Or, or you can say, you know what? I forgive you. I forgive you. Forget about it. You can make the decision to pay for the repairs. To your own car. Man, y'all are hearing me, you know. By the way, anytime you tell somebody, I forgive you, okay? What you're actually saying is, I will pay. Man, you need to hear what I'm saying to you. <laughs> you know I forgive you. Forgiveness means I will pay. I will absorb the 
paying for the damage that you incur. That's what forgiveness is. What is said is that somebody is going to pay. Either the person who damaged your car is going to pay, or the one who is forgiving them is going to pay. You don't have a situation where nobody's paying because even if, the, even if it's my car, I decided I'm not going to fix the car, I'm going to pay. I will pay driving around an ugly looking damaged car and everybody's saying what a worthless man, so long in the car. <laughs> I will pay. I will pay for when the car doesn't work right. <laughs> huh? I will pay in some way. Somebody always pays when damage is done. Someone Axiom. Someone always pays when damage is done. The one who did the damage may be forced to pay. But even the one who forgives is paid. Because forgiveness means you go ahead, I will pay for you. That's kind of God doesn't write off debts because he is a just God. Payment is required. Balance scales of justice are required. So God doesn't say, okay, let's forget about it. He doesn't shut off sin. Somebody has to pay. And you pay in hell forever, infinitely. Or an infinite person sheds infinite blood to pay for you. It'll be hell for you. Jesus doesn't have to go to hell forever because he's an infinite person shedding infinite blood. He just has to visit it for you. Are you hearing me? But if he doesn't pay, you will pay. Somebody will pay. So when Jesus says, I forgive you, your sins are forgiven, what he means is, I will absolve the pain. I will pay. Forgiveness always means I will pay. You go ahead. Even the world around us? How can God forgive us for the wrongs that have made such a mess of this world? How can He forgive? Well, we know. If He forgives, if He doesn't make us pay, He has to pay. On the cross of Calvary, God came in the person of Jesus Christ and cosmically and infinitely paid the price. God the abandonment. God the forsakenness, God the judgment, so it doesn't have to fall on us. Here's what I want you to see. The cross of Calvary, therefore, shows how these things can be brought together. How can God be infinitely holy and infinitely loving at the same time? Only the cross of Calvary will show you. Absolute justice of God is on your side. 
You see, the old rugged cross does make a difference. <laughs> the difference is slaves to sin are ransomed. The difference is the wrath of a holy God is satisfied. The difference is the, infin the infinite death is cancelled. The difference is a new inheritance is established. The difference is there is a peace that passes all understanding. The difference is there is now no condemnation. The difference is the glory of Christ and God for the Lord of the cross. Okay. I'm closing. <laughs> I must affirm that God's extravagant Magnanimous grace is offered to all men without distinction, not without exception, <laughs> but all men without distinction to the preaching of the gospel. But how can men and women hear this message if they, because of sin, are spiritually depraved and deaf and basically dead? The answer is in the monarchism of which we spoke earlier. God must rescue us. He must rescue us. The Blessed Trinity must intervene. Only those chosen of the Father, redeemed by the Son, and quickened by the Holy Spirit will benefit. Everyone must make his or her calling and election sure. Second Peter 1.10 Well, well how, how, is, how is that done? How is that done? How can you make sure that your beneficiary of this extravagant and magnanimous grace. I'm pleased to briefly give you the answer in three words. Respond, refocus, and rejoice. Hmm? What are the three words? Come on, help me. What are the three words? Respond. In other words, answer the call of God. Do you see verse 6? The Lord will call you back. Now verse 6 tells us that if you are to become a real Christian, a real biblical Christian, if you are to truly embrace God and have a personal relationship with Him, God is calling you back the way a husband calls back his wayward wife. Hmm. Where is the wayward wife living? Where is she living? She's living with her lover. God is saying, come back to your true lover. Come back to your true spouse. Leave the house of Odom. Leave your other lover. Listen to me. There are many useful metaphors of God and his holy agenda throughout the entire scripture. Many. For instance, he is a king who calls us to obey. He is a shepherd who calls us to follow. However, the one in our text, that's very special. God is a husband. The true spouse calling you away from your false lovers, your alternate gods, your idols. This in many ways is the most <laughs> incisive of all the metaphors. I think so. <laughs> what this metaphor says is that you cannot come to God unless you're able to see that there is something that you love more than God. Something that you trust more than God. What is it that you count as being more important than God? More important to your self-image? More important to your significance? More important to your security? What is it? You have to identify it for what it is. It's a false God. It's a pseudo-savior. It's a form of spiritual adultery. It may be a job, you know, if you're getting your significance and your identity and your security from a job, the job is your God. A career. It may be a person, you know. If you're getting your identity, your significance and your security from a human being, that human being is your God. Maybe it's a credential, some intellectual pursuit. If you're getting your identity, your significance, and your security from your degrees and your professional achievement, that is your God. Maybe it's a piece of property. Huh? It's 
situated in the right area. Hmm? It's appreciating every year in value. If you're getting your significance, your identity, and your security from real estate, that is your God! Maybe it's a hobby, maybe it's a vice. A device, you know? Maybe you're the stuff, you think so. Hmm? Maybe you think you're God's gift, the world's gift to women. You can use them and abuse them and discard them and whatever else. Because you're it, man. They all want you. <laughs> if you get your significance, your identity, and your security from being a womanizer, that is your God. It may not be what you think of as a sin, but it's a sin because it's more important to you than God. You need to respond to God's call. So I said three things. I said what? Respond whatever. You forget already? Refocus on whatever. Rejoice. So let's refocus. Hmm? The message here is that you have to not just talk about faith, you have to actually apply it. You must know because of the cross of Calvary, move on and forget your past shame. Look at verse 4. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood, for your maker is your husband. Hallelujah. I love this. Somebody said, refocus. <laughs> right now, in the sound of my voice, there are some of you who may feel like failure. Or that there's something you've done and you feel stained, you feel defiled. Because of the cross of Calvary, there is a message for you who are truly penitent and have placed your faith in Christ. Move on. Forget your past shame. That's what it takes. The verse, verse 2 is telling you, move on. I know what you're thinking, Pastor. That's easier said than done. Okay, I know. But if you really want help, please listen to me. How do you forget your past shame? You need to understand the theology here. You need to understand the gospel of sola gratia. <laughs> you need to see what it is. You need to work it into your heart until you forget your shame. Let me help you a little more. In Mark chapter 14, there's an amazing place where the Apostle Peter denies the Lord how many times? Three times. Let me, let, let me just show you the magnitude of what he did. Three times he was asked, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Or words to that effect. Now remember, our Lord Jesus was being beaten and tortured on his way to be killed. To be killed. Alright? As this was going on. Three times Peter is asked, are you a disciple of Jesus? The first time he says no. The second time he says no. The third Peter, welcoming Peter, 
giving great responsibility to Peter. Why? Your maker is your husband. Basically, our Lord Jesus is saying, He said, He's saying, plunge your failures into my grace. Peter, you're going to be the best leader because you are the biggest failure. <laughs> if you plunge your failures into my grace and you really understand what I have done for you, on the one hand, it will humble you. And yet at the same time, you'll be totally secure, which makes you very effective in people's lives and a great leader. Forget your past shame. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if, if there's literally blood on your hands right now. Bring it on. Jesus is able to handle it. And that's what he did on Calvary. Bring it on. The abortions. Bring it on. The sexual immorality with those you use and left. Bring it on. The theft. Bring it on. The hatred. Bring it on. The lies and the pride. Bring it on. The insubordination and the blasphemy and the idolatry. Bring it on. The betrayals. Bring it on and forget your past shame come to Christ. For your maker is your husband. Time to wrap up. Huh? We spoke of what? Three hours. Respond then. We focus. Finally rejoice. The last call here is to literally burst into song. That's the first thing that's said in the text, you know, verse 1. Sing! <laughs> Burst into song about what? Burst into song about the fact that your maker is your husband. One of the most amazing things about this metaphor that God is not just our king, but he is our spouse. is because in marriage, in spousal love, two people are attracted to one another's beauty. That's the way it should work. Hmm? We know they're perversions. But the way it should work is that two people are getting together for life because they are attracted to each other's beauty. We have beauty that is attractive. Why did Jesus come to die? He desired you. In all the ugliness of your sin, in all the corruption of your nature, he saw in you a beautiful opportunity. He did not really see who you are. He saw what he would make you to be. <laughs> Thus, you were beautiful. Do not be confused in your sinful depravity and inability. You are ugly. And many of us are being made ugly repeatedly right now because of sin. But according to Romans 5.20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Where sin abounded, grace did what? Much more abound. In all our ugliness, his grace made us beautiful in his sight. When you begin to even get a little sense of your beauty to Christ, then Christ will become beautiful to you. When Christ becomes beautiful to you, and not just someone to use, come on. That's why the marriage is mashed up, you know. Hmm? Because you see somebody to use to get to your objectives. No, no, no. When Christ becomes beautiful to you, and not just somebody to use, not just somebody you have to obey, it is then that you will start to serve him just because of who he is in and of himself. He'll become to you all together love. You begin to serve him to get the pleasure of pleasing him and giving him pleasure. You know the relationship is sweet when you don't want anything. You just want to give pleasure. You want to give. Your joy is watching the joy in the object of your love. <laughs> when you begin to taste the pleasure of giving God pleasure, when the main thing in the world you want to do is delight the one who delights in you, 
everything in your life will fall into place. And you have to sing. You didn't hear me. <laughs> Let me tell you something, see? If you don't want to sing, you probably have not met Jesus. We sing, we have to. We have to sing. He put a song in our hearts. We sing because we're happy. We sing because we're free. His eyes are on us now. Because we know he's watching us. So we sing. We burst into song. Here's a good song. I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 chances. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior.